That's eerie. I don't know whether you could hear that or not. Well, good evening to everyone. I uh, I made an attempt to keep it short last night, but I'll I'll redouble the effort tonight because uh, we've got two services tomorrow, and I don't want you out sitting too long. The mind can only absorb what the behind can endure. Well, we've been in the Bible quite a bit uh, with this series, and of course that's the very basis of where we want to go. Uh, I was talking with Gordon last night uh, about some of the voyages that he has been reading about across the ocean, and I see he's brought one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten books, or eleven. But he did write out for me uh, a few of these things, and I... I think I'll start the study tonight by catching you up on some of this. There is a plethora of information about various people who crossed the oceans, uh, B.C. and A.D., long, long ago. Now, this is basically will corroborate what we've been reading in God's Word. God's Word, in that sense, is enough for me. If God says they were going back and forth across the oceans back in Solomon's day and in Noah's day and on and on, then I know those things happened. Uh, Yet, I think to corroborate it a bit from history and some of the writers that have done a lot of work in archaeology and study uh, could help from the standpoint that what we are talking about here with how history has been distorted and how we have this narrow little path that uh, the, shall I call it, educational system of the world has. They made this little narrow path and it is distorted. It is not true. So to change that whole viewpoint requires quite a bit. And like I was talking the other night, Uh, We don't believe in evolution, we believe in God. And yet evolutionary thinking can get into our heads in terms of uh, geology and archaeology and how smart people were back then and all of those things. We kind of, without even realizing it, we buy into a lot of those things. And it's hard to change. It's, It's similar to Herbert Armstrong starting out. He'd been a Quaker. A Protestant, and then uh, he basically just forgot about religion. And then when his wife, Loma, started studying and discovered the Sabbath and a few things, she challenged him on that, and he spent a good long period of time proving some of the things that she was saying, uh, trying to disprove them, and ultimately prove them <laughs> against his better judgment in his will. Uh, And so he came to a knowledge of truth, a lot of truth. But then his preaching for decades was still very Protestant-y sounding. He had proved the Protestants were wrong, but that background, that way of approaching things, you could hear in his preaching in the 40s, even the 50s, he kind of sounded Protestant. His writing was a little bit Protestant sounding, or, or, or the way it was put together. And then from decade to decade, there was less and less of that as he began to have uh, more of the approach we have today that doesn't sound Protestant at all. But it took him a long time to change those things, just like you might have been taught from age 1 to 41 or whatever, uh, that Christ was a long-haired, kind of thin, uh, beautiful thing. And that was not the case at all. But those images are in your mind, and they're hard to get out. To this day, if somebody holds up a picture, I flip open a book that has that long-haired Christ in there, I immediately avert my eyes. 
I will not look at that. Because I want that image to go away. And every time you see it, all it does is is uh, strengthen that which you've been trying to get rid of. So it's something I consciously avoid. And for you, you've been given a lot of background. We understand a lot about things now, uh, about how important North America is and how it truly was the promised land and is, and that's why we're here. I've repeated that I don't know how many times, but uh, there will be others who need this information as well. And they don't have now the background and understanding that we do. And some of these things will come as an absolute shock and will require a great deal of proof. And so I think it's just as well that we do a little backup in here Uh, to show some of the things that the Scriptures are talking about. I mean, we can show internally from the Bible a lot of things now that we couldn't at first. We found the Scriptures now that fit what we thought. Uh, But that's a hard sell. And I I think before it is sold to too many people, uh, God is going to have to do some things (laughs) that will sell it that he will do the selling, that we can't. But at the same time, I think the more we fill things out and see how they were, uh, the easier it is for people to grasp that there were things wrong, that history has been distorted, that things have been changed, just as religion has been distorted from what God originally taught. Uh, Look at the religions of the world. Has not Satan become the great deceiver and deceived all mankind and all their religions and fed them a line that is not biblical whatsoever? So he has done a master job of deceiving the entire world. And the Bible even says he deceives the whole world. Now, don't you think that if he deceived on religion, he would also want to deceive on history? Because history has so much to do with religion, doesn't it? The true religion, uh, even where Jerusalem and the promised land is, I think he has deceived the world. So there are some incredible deceptions that have occurred. And we as a church knew that about religion. We didn't know it about history. So this is just one more thing that Satan has done. And he's also deceived about prophecy. And we're going to see that coming to pass more and more as time goes on. He's going to deceive the whole world into thinking that the Antichrist is the real Christ. So his deceptions aren't finished yet. There's still a lot of work that he has to do. And he's a master at it. So much so that it would deceive the very elect if that were possible. That's how bad it's going to get. So history, religion, And now, prophecy. So he's covered the whole thing. And I think when people put, if you put it in that context, it makes it easier to see that if he did it here, why wouldn't he do it here? Because to truly change religion, you have to change some things in history to fit your religious ideas. And he's been, he's a master at it. Anyway, he and uh, Gordon wrote this out, and uh, this is entitled Early Foreigners in North America, Central, and South America. Uh, and, he, and he does it by the different peoples who came over here. So I'll just kind of go through it as he did it. Uh, Egypt, I mentioned briefly the other night, all there is about the Grand Canyon on the Internet. Uh, this was reported in 1909 in the Phoenix Gazette. Uh, and on page 73 in the book, Guide to the World's Greatest Treasures. So, it isn't a new thing. He's got the book right there. Uh, It isn't a new thing to consider that the Egyptians built a city underground uh, in the Grand Canyon, in the Canyon Wall. 1909 that came out. It's interesting to have the, the quote. And now it's all over the Internet. The Internet wasn't here in 1909. Uh, so this is something that has carried on through. So 
who knows, unless the government allows us to go in and look. But to me, it says a lot that they've closed down a part of that canyon that you cannot now go to and explore. And there's other places where the wall looks about the same. I mean, why would you close this part and not this part? They're six of one, half a dozen the other. But there's some reason they've got part of that closed. Just like I think there are some reasons they've got parts of Zion Canyon closed. There are things on the walls or things back in there somewhere they don't want us to see. Shouldn't it be that if there's nothing to hide, that anywhere you could get a rope and a rappel to take you, you could go? What's the difference? Well, there's some places they don't like to talk about. So, be that as it may. Anyway, in terms of voyages, 530 A.D., St. Brendan's Miraculous Voyage, this was about an Irish monk who crossed the Atlantic in a tiny leather boat, and there are 120 or more texts telling about the voyage that have been found. So it wasn't just somebody reporting, you know, this monk dreaming uh, in a monastery somewhere that he had crossed the, the Atlantic and he wrote it down. No, there's 120 different texts that have been found that document it. And this is just a bird's eye view, quickly. I, I don't have time to go through 11 books, and you're glad I don't. Um, he sailed to the Azor Islands, then on to the Bahamas, or close to Florida, and north along the North American coast, and on and off and on up to Newfoundland, and to Iceland, and then back to Ireland. And the ocean currents would take you right there. Somebody recently crossed in a bathtub, wasn't it? 1993, somebody crossed the Atlantic in a bathtub. It can be done, you know, with big or little boats. Now, you know, if we started having everybody try that, some bathtubs would sink. But, uh, but the guy successfully did it. So, you know, we're not as limited as history would like to tell us. Here from uh, 982 to 1000 A.D., somewhere right in there, <clears throat> Eric the Red and Leif Erikson went to Iceland, to Greenland, to Newfoundland, and on to Vineland, which is on the uh, northeastern American coast. That one's been pretty well documented by a lot of books that I read even when I was a kid, showing that the Vikings were here long before Columbus. And those, those names you might even see in a history book, Eric the Red and Leif Erikson. I think I remember those from history class in seventh grade. So that one's not entirely new. 1170 A.D., uh, Madoc Ab Owen Gwinnell's voyage across the Atlantic. He sailed to Florida and on to the area of Mobile, Alabama, and left a colony of 120 people. He returned to Wales and encouraged ten boatloads of people, women included, to return with him to the original colony. Uh, they explored Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, and some accounts claim these colonists intermarried and integrated uh, into the Mandan Indian tribe, which has members with blue eyes and light-colored hair. The Mandans are, I think, up in the kind of Iowa, Illinois, North Dakota. Yeah, Mandan, Man of Dan, uh, with blonde and blue. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just a fact. Those Indians are like that. Uh, from 1415 to 1421 A.D., uh, there are tales of the journeys of the Ming Dynasty, the Chinese, uh, the voyages of four admirals, Hong Bao, along the east coast of South America, after traveling west, uh, underneath South Africa. So around the Cape of Good Hope and on across to South America. Uh, Yang Zuing, Zuig went to Southeast Asia, India, and Eastern Africa along those coasts. And then Zhu Man went west to, east, to the East African coast, Madagascar along there, and south around Africa's southern tip and up the west coast of Africa to areas of Cape Verde. 
He went west across the Atlantic to the northeast coast of South America, along the east South American coast to the southern tip, and up the west coast of South America, Central America, and North America to about Oregon, and then west across the Pacific Ocean. So they actually went clear around the world during the Ming Dynasty. Uh, and that's one reason you find Asian DNA among the peoples of South America and some in North America. And then Zhu Win, I guess it is, went west along Southeast Asia and India to Africa's east coast, then around Africa's coast to near Cape Verde, uh, then across the Atlantic Ocean to areas of Cuba, Florida, the North Americas, the east coast to Canada, Newfoundland, around the north coast of Greenland, and back east across the Atlantic to northern Scandinavia, and across the seas north of Russia and the northern Asian countries, south past Japan, and back to China, around the Antarctic, it says. Um, that's a lot of sailing. But there are records of the different peoples of that. Someone looked up today uh, the peoples of India, and particularly in the southern part of India, uh, the DNA there is definitely Hamitic. And in southeast India, it's almost all Hamitic. So there is a, a very strong black influence in India, and it says that those people who went to India from Ham were the ones who taught uh, technical things and uh, and and all to the people who were already in India. So, mankind has moved around a lot. The Celts. Now, this is 1000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ, and this would have been uh, prior to uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those prophets wrote around in the 500 to 700 B.C. Uh, so, the Celts went to New England and as far west as Oklahoma and Colorado. Their inscriptions using uh, the ancient Celtic uh, alphabet. Of course, some of you have seen the uh, stone down at Los Lunas, New Mexico, with the Ten Commandments written in ancient Hebrew. I've been there and seen that one, taking pictures of it. Uh, the Egyptians. This is interesting because I do believe that Canaan and Mitzrium, uh, Egypt, was here in the southwest and further south from here. Uh, the rock markings along the River Palisade in New York City, the calendar stalls in Putnam Museum identified by Barry Fell as having Egyptian, Iberian, Punic, and Libyan scripts on it. So uh, the writing of the peoples of Ham has been found. That's in Davenport, Iowa, I think you said. Yeah, there's, he's got a picture of it there. Uh, some think Admiral Nearchus of the Greek Navy sailed after Alexander the Great's death east around India and southeast Asia to Central America, and that he and his comrades are the white-bearded men in the many Indian legends. Uh, that's something also to consider. There are many, many Indian legends uh, in South America and in North America of bearded white men who came. And Quetzalcoatl is one of them uh, that they say came as a white man and was going to come back as a savior. Uh, I have wondered over the years if that might not have been Christ visiting with Joseph of Arimathea because Steve Collins does quite a bit of documentation about how Joseph was doing business all over the world in those lost years of Christ's adulthood before he started his ministry here in Jerusalem. Uh, he may have traveled with Joseph of Arimathea all over the world, which would be quite interesting. Uh, you can go to Steve Collins' book about Israel and, and pick that documentation up if you wish. Uh, the Muslims, 889 A.D., Kashbash, 
Ibn Salid Ibn Aswad of Cordoba, Cordoba or something like that, of Cordoba, Spain, sailed across the Atlantic and returned with fabulous treasures. And those are all contained within these books here. So just a, that's just a smattering, but it gives you an idea of, of some of the records that are out there of a lot of activity that you didn't learn about in 7th or 8th grade, and neither did I. Uh, these are things that are available. It's just that most people never go there. They don't look it up. They don't read it. They don't study archaeology or history, and therefore they're blissfully unaware of it. But when you start looking into it, uh, the seas were crisscrossed a lot. All right, let's get back to where we were headed last night. I, I kind of finished up with Ishmael. And some thoughts on that. Uh, at this point, I do believe they were uh, still in Arabia. Let's go to Genesis 24. Now, there's quite a little in the Bible, and some of you may have seen, and I, I don't know whether they're on our website or not. I wrote a series of articles when I was in uh, the Church of the Great God in Charlotte, about uh, the race question and the various places in the Bible that God shows that he was trying to keep the races separate, uh, that he had a plan and a purpose in creating the races. And uh, I thought it was fairly well nailed down and had a lot of references to show that. And yet now as we're studying, there was a lot more mixing than we might have realized. And God did not censure that particularly. Uh, he allowed it in many cases. I think Joseph, uh, when Pharaoh gave him two wives of Egypt, uh, they were probably black women since Mitzrayim was Egypt, so Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh were probably half white, half black. And uh, Potiphar's wife, obviously, would have been black. You don't, you know, the movies about that never showed that. She was a seductive white woman, wasn't she? That's what the movies all show. And yet the Bible clearly says that Egypt, Mitzrayim, was of Ham. Mitzrayim was the son of Ham. And Potiphar was a Mitzrayite uh, Egyptian. So Potiphar was black, and I'm sure in that black society his wife was as well. So there's another distortion you have that Hollywood and, and profane history has that uh, I never thought about it. I always just assumed that the movies were right. Didn't you? That's what they showed, so that's what I figured. So this is not a subject that is completely nailed down, I don't think, one way or another. Uh, we're going to read right here. The reason I said that in Genesis 24 is that uh, Abram, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Eternal had blessed Abraham in all things. And this is where he wanted to get a son for Isaac. And Abraham said to his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put you, I pray you, your hand in my crotch. That's what it means. And I will make you swear by the eternal, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife unto my son of, the of my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So Abraham made a point here that Isaac was not to marry a Canaanite woman. Uh, and Abraham was the father of the faithful. He says, you shall go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife to my son Isaac. It may well, I, I always thought that this was probably, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80 miles away. Uh, didn't dream that it might be three or 4,000 miles away. Uh, if Abraham were here in the Promised Land, and where he had come from in Haran and Mesopotamia was across the ocean, this might have been a pretty good trip the guy took. And they didn't have jet airplanes, so it, he would have been... Uh, you know, it takes about 30, 45 days to cross the Atlantic. 
or whatever, depending on how you're going. But by sailing ship, it could be done in about a month. Uh, but Abraham wanted... See, he already uh, had a son, Ishmael, from Hagar, who was black. She was a Mitzriamite, not a Canaanite. Uh, and he had started through Hagar, the line of Ishmael, uh, through a black woman. So I don't think that Abraham was particularly prejudiced in terms of race. Uh, he had a lot of children around that were half and half. So that wasn't the problem. And then later, after Sarah died, he married Keturah. Uh, we're still chasing that one out, but I, I think the chances are pretty good she may have been black as well. Uh, and he, well, he had quite a few wives after Sarah died. Uh, but Keturah was the one that had, I think, six kids by Abraham after that. So I don't think the man was racially prejudiced. Uh, but God had told him that the seed of Shem through Abraham, of Noah, well, Noah, Shem, and on down through Eber to, uh, and Nahor to Abraham, would go through Isaac, not through Ishmael. So whether God had told him, I want you to keep this line going uh, straight through uh, Shem, I do not know. But God did visit with Abraham from time to time. So it may not have been as much a racial thing, since Abraham did have children by, uh, through other races, but it may have been that God wanted that line of Christ uh, to be the way that it was. And yet we know that downstream, uh, there were Gentiles directly in the line of Christ. Uh, Ruth, for instance, uh, was a Moabitess, which was a, a daughter of Lot. Well, that wasn't... That wasn't Gentile. Lot was, well, yeah, yeah, it was too, because Lot was not uh, in the direct line. Lot was a brother, and there was a different line of people. So Ammon and Moab are not Israelites. So when, uh, where was I headed with that thought? Uh, oh, Ruth was a Gentile and married into the line of Christ. As I, I think Rahab was too, was she not? And uh, and she was definitely black. So God did not have a problem in the line of Christ having uh, Hamitic people in it, or Gentile people of other or Japheth, whatever. I don't know. I don't know of any Japheth I was in Christ's line. But you'll find that. Ham and Shem were very close together throughout history. It's a very interesting parallel. We'll see some of that as we go through this. So, God may have wanted, though, uh, the Shemite line to stay at that point basically white or Semitic, and he allowed a little intermarriage here and there without any problem because that, as the races separated, uh, that bred back out either direction. Uh, but he apparently had some reasons that he wanted Isaac, uh, Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph apparently intermarried. So Ephraim and Manasseh were half Ham and half Shem. Does this sound confusing? I don't know all the answers. Now, we will find that the places where God sat on them hard about intermarrying was not so much from the racial mix as it was from those peoples who did not serve God, drawing them away into idolatry. And you'll find that aspect of it almost everywhere God condemns the intermarriage. Uh, that's the notation that is made. And I think that that becomes a very, very important issue. Uh, not so much race as religion. That is the bigger issue. Just as uh, religion was the biggest issue in the early New Testament church. Once it was understood that all peoples of all races could come into the church, that there was not any racism involved there, that we're all the same in Christ, uh, 
then it was not a matter of race, it was a matter of religion, wasn't it? Are you truly converted? Are you ready to worship the one true God? Okay, if you are, then no matter what makes you are racially, uh, you might be Heinz 57, it didn't make any difference. Uh, It was religion that was the key. So I think that we're going to see that more and more prominently as we study the issues here, uh, who married who, uh, without condemnation. And, you know, if God had wanted to keep it completely pure both directions, then he would have made sure that didn't happen that way. Okay? But he didn't do that. He let some of that stuff happen and for his purposes. But for whatever purpose here... Abraham said, don't take a Canaanite, go clear to Haran and find a woman for me there. And when he found Rebekah, you know the rest of that story, so I won't go there. Uh, I just wanted to, to, to point out uh, the situation and how it varied from time to time in Scripture. So I don't know why, that I, at this point, know God's whole mind on those issues. But I think we need to be, have an open mind to put all of Scripture together and however God intended it, whatever God allowed, whatever God okayed or censured, then we need to get in line with in our own thinking. I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think. All I care is what does God think. That's the only thing that matters in any of these issues And race is one of the most emotional, uh, difficult issues you can touch because so many people around the world have so many different emotions and feelings and background and teaching and, you know, on and on and on it goes. But the converted mind obviously does not have issues there with other converted minds no matter what the racial mixture is. Now, when it comes to marriage, and then most of us, I think, could understand that, and most people in the church would grasp that. What about then when it comes to marriage? Well, that's, that's kind of what we're dealing with here, isn't it? Is marriage and the mixing of the races together. So it's not entirely a religious matter, but the matter of intermarriage within the races also comes to the front. And that's the part, I mean, the, the religious and spiritual part I don't have any questions about whatever. The marriage part is the part that remains somewhat of a mystery. And you you start reading this scripture and say, hey, there's no problem with that. And you read another one and think, well, maybe there is. Uh, How do we get the whole story and what God intended then and intends now? That's the difficult part. So I know my mind is open to it. If some of the things I might have said in those articles turns out not to be quite right, 12, 15 years down the line, uh, then we'll change them based on what we find in this book, because this is what counts. Uh, Anyway, and that may not be much of a problem now, but what about when we get 7, 8, 10, 12, 15,000 people from all over the world here? And so-and-so kind of gets Twitter-pated with so-and-so, and they say, we want to get married. Well, duh. Now what? <laughs> you know, uh, this maybe God is bringing some of this stuff up now. I, I don't know exactly how it will all come down, but uh, we shall see. And maybe that's why it is becoming an issue now, is because we may need to learn some things, one direction or another, uh, in terms of what we would or would not allow or what uh, God would wish. And whether we did or did not allow, I would hope would be based on what God says, not any man's opinion. Uh, anyway, I think that's enough on that particular thing. Uh, 28.1... That, that's repeated in here. There's another scripture right here where that servant came and said, I'm not to find a, a, a Canaanite woman for Isaac. Uh, and then in chapter 28, 
Well, we find Esau in chapter 34 of 26. Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, uh, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. I don't know whether I'll come across this again or not. It's in here. But, uh, oh, here, here's some of it. Isaiah or chapter 28 and verse 8 of, of Genesis and Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau to Ishmael uh, and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. So it appears that Esau, who had a rebellious, mean, nasty attitude, uh, married in different races out of spite to Isaac and Rebekah, because Abraham had said, Isaac, you're not to marry a Canaanite woman. And Isaac had that same mindset. And then when uh, Jacob did what Isaac wanted, Esau said, I'll do just the opposite. Take that. And, th- and that attitude is seen here. Now that's up in verse 6, 7, 8 is that story. Um, chapter 28, verse 19. Now, here's where Jacob had his dream. You remember where he saw the, the uh, ladder that went up to heaven and so on. And when he woke up, he said, How dreadful is this place, verse 17. Uh, this is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So, uh, he made a pillar there and called it Bethel, uh, which is fairly close to uh, Jerusalem uh, over there. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. So it had a Hamitic name on it, and he renamed it Bethel because of the dream that he had there with God. So here again we have the Canaanite influence that was there before Israel was there, before Jacob was there. Let's see. I I wanted to get just a little bit of this uh, in verse 13 of chapter 28 uh, about his dream because of what God told him. And behold, the Eternal stood above it, the ladder that reached to the heavens, and said, I am the Eternal God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon you lie, to thee will I give it, and to your seed... And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. So from where that was, I think it was in the same area that Abraham had been when God told him, this is the land you get, and he told him, look north, south, east, and west, and that's the land you'll have. He said the exact same thing to Jacob here. And in you... And in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Let me ask you a question. Has the earth been blessed from Israel in the Middle East? Can someone tell me how that area has blessed the whole world? Enrich them? Help them, strengthen them. Uh, I don't see it. I don't see it. Nothing ever has come out of there that has been a blessing to all the earth. Well, what about this country? If you look, if you stood out here somewhere in the southwest and looked east, north, south, and west and went to from shining sea to shining sea, uh, this is the breadbasket of the world. Uh, the ores, the iron uh, that built the American industry and, sh- and built ships and cars and, and the pro- produce of this nation uh, is incredible. And the gold and so on, and the California gold rush, the Alaskan gold rush, and you just start getting into it and how we have sent aid and food 
all over the world. Now we're a Babylonian government over a, an Israelite nation, and we have hammered the whole earth in terms of wars and so on and making them do our will. But at the same time, this country in the end time has been there giving aid by the millions and millions and, car, you know, plane loads and ship loads of stuff where there have been disasters like no other people ever has. We have been a blessing to the whole world in that way. Now, we're becoming a curse to them because of our military and, and the things we do there to impose our will, but that's an entirely different matter. Uh, that has increased more and more as they've gotten closer to this new world order. But you go back 30, 40, 50, 80, 100, 200 years, and this country has been a blessing to the world more than any country on earth. Now, does Israel over there fulfill this scripture and this promise made to Jacob better than America? I mean, you might argue about some other country that's done a lot for people, but we're only contrasting two, the Middle East and here. Because that's the crux of the question. Is that the promised land or is this? So there are more and more things that come out that show he was talking about here, not there. And behold, I am with you and will keep you in all places where you go and will bring you again into this land. For I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. Now remember we saw last night that he had told Abraham, I'll bless your seed and it will blah, 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 and you'll have north, south, east, and west, and so on. And then he said, but you will go into captivity for 400 years in a land that is not yours. So he's telling Jacob the same thing here. Uh, and I will bring you again into this land. In other words, you're going to leave this land, but I will bring you back. Now, Jacob, later on, went down into Mitzrayim, where Joseph was, and there his bones stayed. He died there until they finally brought him out. So, then Israel went back to the Promised Land when they were released from Mitzrayim later on. And he realized that that was the place that God had appointed. So he had to have been in the same place Abraham was and Isaac was when God had made the same promises to them. Uh, let's see. Genesis 35.6. Jotted that down to look at. I don't remember what I, it said. Um, well, God had told Jacob to go up to Bethel. In verse 5, they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is, what he later called Bethel. He and all the people that were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, the, the Bethel of the God of God, God's place of God, because there God appeared to him when he had fled from the face of his brother. So he kept coming back to that same place. Uh, let's see here. Chapter 48. I'm watching my watch. Uh, Jacob said to Joseph in verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. So here he's talking to Joseph, who was getting old. Uh, he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, when he did this thing up in verse 1. So Jacob is looking back at where he had been, and he's telling Joseph, uh, you're going back where you came from. And that his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born to you in the land of Mitzrayim before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. 
Now, I think he's telling him here that you may have married in the Mitzrayim because you came here as a young fellow, and your children are of Mitzrayim, they're of this land, but they're mine, and I'll call them mine, just like I did my own children. Uh, So, that could be an important thing here, because remember, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob had an attitude about marrying into the Canaanite peoples, or or the Mitzriamites. So, here, he's saying, I accept this. These will be mine, just like the others are mine. He brought them into Israel, because Jacob, by this time, was named Israel. Well, I guess he wasn't. It was short, shortly after this that God uh, changed his name, wasn't he? He's still calling him Jacob here. But God endorsed the whole thing by uh, doing that. Now to go to Joshua 16. And here, uh, about verse 1. And the lot of the children of Joseph fell from Jordan to Jericho, under the water of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through Mount Bethel, and goes out from Bethel to Luz, and passes along to the borders of Archai to Ataroth, and goes down westward to the coast of Jephletai, unto the coast of Bethoron, uh, on the nether into Gezer, and the goings out thereof are at the sea." So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. So he's describing, Joshua is, he's he's settling these peoples. And he's settling them in the same land of Luz, the same areas that we've been reading about back here. So when they did get to the promised land, that's where they went. Uh, I kind of skipped over the beginning of Joshua here where Moses... Uh, died, and uh, Joshua took over to take them in. Let's go back for a moment to chapter 2 of Joshua. Joshua the son of Nun sent out to Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, behold, there came men in the night, and so on. You know the story about how she hid them, and and then they got out. Uh, And these people were scared. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Eternal dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Mitzrayim, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, And we didn't have any more courage because of the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and in the earth below. Um, And then the men left, and she let them down by a cord in a window and said, uh, you know, take care of me, and I won't tell anybody. And she told them where to hide because the pursuers had a certain way they went to look for people who were escaping. And that's in verse 16. And then she would hang that scarlet thread. Now, does it say in this context what I'm looking for? Uh, Well, we know that they went into the land of Canaan. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I might, in my notes, I might come to another scripture that that brings it out, but it it came to mind here. You know, they were in in Mitzrayim, or Egypt, and were uh, the slaves of Ham, of the Mitzrayimite uh, division, or branch of Ham. And then they were delivered from there, and that that land, that empire, was utterly destroyed by the death of the firstborn, the cattle, and uh, not a blade of grass left. And those those plagues just wiped out that entire empire and, and almost wiped those people out. So a great presence who had been here in the promised land of Mitzriamites were almost wiped out. Their empire was gone. 
So you say, well, all those people came over here before Abraham came over. What happened to them? Well, those who were probably down south of Jerusalem uh, were pretty much wiped out as a people by the events that sprung Israel out. So they just disappeared. And uh, who knows what happened to those who survived. They may have headed back to South America or where the Olmec uh, stuff is we were talking about last night. Or they may have even gone clear back to Africa because I believe that one branch, Cush, was probably Ethiopia. And the black history of Africa seems to bear that out, that the Cushites were still there. And when they saw their empire destroyed here, a lot of them may have left at that time and headed back south and east, even across the ocean. I don't know that, but uh, pretty much disappeared from here. But Israel had just been in captivity to the Mitzriamites of Ham, and then they came to the Promised Land, and who did they encounter when they got there? The other son of Ham, Canaan. So they had been in captivity to black people, and they came out of Mitzrayim and right into Canaan, which was the land of the black people. You never knew that. I didn't. Did anybody know that? I never thought of it that way. But that's clearly what the Bible record says. That'll shake some history books, won't it? I told you I'd quit early. I'm going to stop right there. Once in a while, I do keep my promise. By the way, I, I got my ice cream bowl that's in my briefcase. I wanted to be sure I had it tomorrow. <laughs>